0: You hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Reverend Eric Alexander.
1: You turn with me in your Bible this morning to the sixth chapter of Isaiah. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. It was the middle of the 8th century B.C. when Isaiah had this experience most probably and the world was full of change and unrest. It was most likely a time highly parallel to our own generation. Isaiah, the prophet, was doubtless deeply aware as King Isaiah had died And particularly as King Uzziah had died in disgrace, he died a leper, in a sense under the judgment of God, and Isaiah the prophet was deeply aware of the transience of human rule, of the flimsy nature of human authority, of the unreliability of human figures in every sense. And here in the midst of this situation there was nothing Isaiah and the people of God needed so much as a vision of God on his exalted throne. The throne of Judah was empty. But what Isaiah is being taught is that the throne of God is occupied and that God remains eternally. The one who is exalted sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. It is a significant thing perhaps that tradition at least if not history suggests that it was about this very time when Isaiah had his vision that the great city of Rome was founded and certainly the future history was of the continuing decline of Judah and the growth in power and significance of Rome as an empire until the day when the prophecies of Isaiah were fulfilled and Jesus the Christ was born and Judah was an occupied country under the dominion of Rome. But the constant fact in all the movement of history was that the Lord God Omnipotent reigned on his throne. Now, at this point, Isaiah is given a vision not only of the fact of God's reign on his throne in glory, but of the nature of this sovereign who sits on the throne. We have already thought two weeks ago about where God is. He is the sovereign Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we go on to this vision of Isaiah this morning asking the question, who is he? And the answer which comes from the throne of God is, he is the one who is infinitely holy, infinitely high. He is the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. Now, you will realize that in this passage that we read this morning, the throne of God is surrounded by seraphs. Now, seraphs appear very scarcely in the Scripture. Cherubim appear frequently, and they are angelic creatures. But the root meaning of the word for a seraph, which is also some kind of angelic figure, is the idea of burning. And these seraph figures are like flaming creatures, in a sense reflecting the flaming glory that was round the throne of God in his infinite holiness. And continually they are crying, it seems possibly antiphonally crying the one to the other, concerning the God who is sitting on his throne and what they are absorbed with is his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the essence of God's nature, they are saying, is that he is the Holy One. That is his name. Now let me explain to you what it is that they are saying and how they are saying it. The Hebrew language has no word for very, Nor does it have a form of speech to compare with our superlatives, greatest, loveliest, purest, or whatever. What it does instead is to repeat the word, so that you discover when, for example, Jesus wants to say, very truly I say to you, he says, and it is a Semitic form that you find in Aramaic, to truly, truly I say to you. So you find this repetition, part of the way of emphasis to say that something is of an intense nature they simply repeat the word but nowhere is a characteristic of God described in the form in which this characteristic of God is described as it were intensified again and again holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and what the seraphim are saying is that there is an intense holiness in the character of God which language can scarcely describe now it is the same language that is spoken in heaven we read in Revelation 4.8 where they rest not day nor night saying holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty which is and which is to come now that means that This is a tremendously important truth in Scripture. That is why I say that it is presented to us as the very essence of the character of God. Somebody has said it is not so much that God is holy, but that holiness is God. This is God's very nature and character. Whatever else God is, above all else, he is the Holy One. Indeed, the commonest name for God in the Bible, did you know, occurring well, more frequently than all the others put together, is that he is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Now, what does the word mean? What is it saying to us about God? Well, there are two meanings in this twice-repeated word, holy. Holy. First of all, it means to separate. The root idea of the word people sometimes have suggested is to cut. That is to set apart. It speaks of distinctiveness. It speaks therefore of God in his distinctiveness. But it is used in various ways. The first time the word is used in the Bible is of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is to be set apart. It is to be put aside for God. And things are described as holy when they are set apart for God. There are holy places because God is to be met there. There is a holy ground because God is standing there. There are holy things because they are used for God. And the word means that this is set apart, it is put aside, it is different. Used of God, it means he is exalted above all else in the universe. God is, as it were, on a plane utterly by himself. And what sets him apart from men and from his creation is his intense and glorious holiness. He is apart from us in his purity and righteousness and majesty and beauty. So the holiness of God makes him distinct from men above all else. It makes him distinct from all that is impure and unrighteous and untrue. God is lifted above all of this. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. The Lord is separated from all that is impure. So you discover that the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, which is a description, of course, of his separateness, says to Moses when Moses begins to draw near to him, do not draw near. The voice comes out from the burning bush. Do not draw near. Why? Because the place whereon you're standing is holy ground. Now it's not holy ground because it has been set aside or consecrated by men. It is holy ground because God is there. And God cannot be approached by sinful men. You are to stand back, says the voice out of the bush. Because God is separate in his holiness. He is exalted in his holiness. And that is what exalts God to a place of infinite height and glory. But there is another meaning to this word. It means not only separate or cut off. It also means a shining or a burning. That is, God's holiness is like an outbreak. And you can almost see it here in this experience of Isaiah. An outbreak of burning, shining light and glory. God's holiness is a blinding, fiery burning which causes even the very seraphim who are themselves burning fiery creatures to veil their eyes and cover their faces. They cannot look upon this. It is the kind of thing we experience with the sun. In its brightness we shade ourselves from it. But here these unfallen creatures cover their faces before the outshining of this infinite burning glory of God. Now we are touching something here that we really have little equipment fully to understand. But there are two things that we need to gather from these meanings of the the word that describes God's character. First, that he is the high and exalted one. That he is separated from his creation and especially separated from all that is sinful and unrighteous and impure and untrue. That he is the Lord who sits exalted upon his throne. He is the high and lofty one. The other thing that it speaks to us about is the moral perfection of God. And that of course affects all our thinking about God. The first effects are thinking about him because he is not like one of us. God is not a man. He is exalted in his infinite holiness and glory. But also, we learn a great deal about God from this burning, shining glory. It speaks of his moral perfection. That means, you see, that God's nature is perfect, burning purity. The Bible describes it in various forms, and you can almost see that the language is searching for some way to speak of it. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now that is why again and again there is almost an outbreak of this glorious holiness of god upon men it happens in eden when adam and eve in the garden of eden are cast out and there is a great flaming sword put on the garden to keep the way of the tree of life they are not to come near you see you find the same thing on the mountain when moses is given the commandments the holy law of god That great, burning, fiery experience that he saw on the Mount at Sinai was God's flaming holiness. The law is a reflection of his holiness, his moral perfection. And the flaming glory that surrounded Sinai was God's flaming glory. You find the same thing in the tabernacle. Here God is present in his glory and the place is called the holy place. And no man dare enter it except the high priest once a year. Now the reason for that is not some formal exclusion. It's not some religious observance. It is that that place was called, and notice the repetition of the word, the holy of holies. God was there now when we come to the experience of isaiah having seen something of this infinite glory of god we need to ask what did it do for isaiah what were the things that were pressed upon isaiah's spirit by this vision of god in his infinite holiness let me mention one or two of them to you the first He saw the true nature of sin. Now this was not a vision of sin. This was a vision of God in his infinite holiness. It was God who filled the temple. It was his train that covered it. It was from God that everything that was being done there flowed. But you will notice that this vision of God in his majestic holiness and blinding purity has a profound effect not only on Isaiah, but also on the very foundations of the temple. The whole ground seems to heave beneath him like an earthquake. The very earth is trembling before the awesome nature of God's holiness in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. That is the very calling of the name of God in his holiness. This very chant of the seraphim caused the whole earth to heave and tremble. What was causing them to heave and tremble? It was the reality of the holiness of God that was causing it. Now as for Isaiah personally, he can only cry out that he is experiencing a personal consternation because of being in the presence of God in this sense. Now here is something, my dear friends, from which we greatly need to learn in our generation. The cry of Isaiah is, I am ruined. Woe is me. Other versions have, I am undone. What it really means is, I am without hope. Disaster has come upon me. That is what he is saying. I am finished. There is no possibility of any hope. There is no light in this darkness. There is such glorious light around the throne of God. But for Isaiah, he says, I am ruined and in utter consternation and despair. Now, there is one overwhelming reason for this state of great distress and deep conviction of spirit. And that is that he has suddenly seen... Not just sin in general, but his own sin in particular, in the presence of a holy God. That is the crucial thing. In verse 5 he says, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. If you think of it, we might well have regarded Isaiah's distress as somewhat exaggerated when it is concentrated on unclean lips. Have you ever thought about that? Unclean lips might seem to us a kind of amiable weakness. Certainly not something that would greatly shock us, even in the modern world. But you see, to Isaiah this represents something of the reality of sin's defilement. It may be that unclean lips speak of many different things, of the fact that he has not been able to bring to God the glory that is his due. He may be speaking about his inability to worship God, which is why he was created in the first place. It may be that the defilement of his lips is just a signal of the defilement in his heart. But whatever it is, this man has seen sin's defilement in the presence of God's holiness. And he cries out, I am ruined. Oswald Sanders, who was in this pulpit some time ago, was the general director of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, wrote these words, When one reads of the Puritans mourning over their sin... We can only conclude that either they were very wicked men, or we are very superficial Christians. That's worth thinking about, is it not? It really does, you see, have everything to do with seeing something of the holy character and intense purity of God. Do you know the story of the hunchback of Notre Dame, that pathetic figure, Quasimodo, who says to the girl that he takes away up into the towers of Notre Dame when he looks upon her, and he is an ugly, ugly being. But when he looks upon her, he says, I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. The nature of sin is what Isaiah sees in the presence of the holiness of God. He also discovers the true nature of grace. You will notice that in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah experienced the grace of God bringing him cleansing for his defilement and the removal of his guilt and a full atonement for his sin. Because there in the middle of the temple there is an altar. Now all attention is focused now on the altar. Then flew one of the seraphim to me having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now the altar is a place of sacrifice. It is a place where a substitute has the sins of men laid upon it and it is offered up in the place of the one who is guilty so that it takes the guilt and defilement and foulness and judgment of sin. And this seraph comes to Isaiah and says, Lo, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin in the NIV version is atoned for. Now, we don't have time to go into the details of that, but you will recognize it as a token of that burnt offering for sin which God has provided, and it is therefore a token of his grace. And the fact that a God so infinitely holy is prepared to deal with sinners so infinitely defiled is one of the most mysterious things in this whole experience of Isaiah. There is a mystery here that is almost as deep as the mystery of God's holiness. That God is able to bring pardon and cleansing and freedom from sin's guilt and power to one who is so deeply conscious of his sin. But you see, such amazing grace Really dawns upon our soul against the background of a vision of the holiness of God. The reason that grace is not a mystery to many of us, my dear brothers and sisters, has a lot to do with our failure to grasp what God's holiness really means. There was a French cynic who had a proverb God will forgive, that's his business. And there are so many occasions when that really is the language of our hearts. And grace will never become truly amazing to us until we have been where Isaiah was and caught a vision of his holiness. He saw the true nature of sin, the true nature of grace, the true nature of worship, thirdly. There are several insights into the nature of worship in these verses. I commend it to you to study for yourself. First, do you notice how these unfallen seraphic beings behave in the presence of God's holiness? Here they are not a fallen creation. You could understand a fallen creation in the presence of God being prostrate and silence, saying, "'The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all within keep silence before him.'" We are not going to be involved in the normal affairs of our daily life because we are in the presence of the Holy One. But here are these creatures unfallen whose habitation is the presence of God. And do you see what they do? They cover their faces. They cover their feet. You may know the hymn that we are going to sing in a moment that Thomas Binney wrote. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be. It has some lines in it. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss, but that is surely theirs alone. Now that is only partly true, because there is a sense in which these Seraphic burning beings were unable to bear the shining glory of God's holiness. They have six wings, you know, in this picturesque figure that is painted for us. With two of them they cover their face. They are unable to behold the glory. With two they cover their feet. That is a symbol of modesty and humility. It may also be a symbol that because the feet are treading... On unholy places, they want to cover everything from God that would be of that nature. But they cover themselves. They are covered before God because they cannot bear his holiness upon them. And so they imply four of their wings to cover themselves. And if that is true for them... How much more it should be true for us that as we come into the presence of God to worship him, we should, if we have grasped something of his infinite holiness and his burning glory, we should be prostrated in his presence. The essence of their worship here in this chapter is reverence and godly fear. And when we lose that, it is really because we have lost a biblical vision of God. But you notice that along with the humbling of themselves, it is God they are exalting. And this really is the nature of worship. There are two elements in worship. There is the humbling of ourselves, and there is the exalting of God, thrice holy they cry the Lord Almighty the whole earth is filled with his glory and that's what they are chanting about to one another I almost misread what I had written here and said that's what they are chatting about to one another and you know it's true that's what we ought to be chatting about to one another if we chat at all great thing to be welcoming one another you will know my heart burns with a desire that we should be welcoming to one another but my dear friends the center of our vision once we have settled down to worship god needs to be this god who is exalted in his holiness and glory the whole earth is full of his glory and we are bowed down before him like elijah Who bowed down with his head between his knees and his face to the ground. Have you ever tried to do that? Do you notice what it signifies? The point about it is that you cannot get lower. And that is the picture of the man who is worshipping. That God may be exalted. That he may be abased. And the two remaining wings are employed to fly to do his bidding. Because that is how worship expresses itself. Now here's the last thing as we close. He saw the true nature of sin, the true nature of grace, the true nature of worship. And there is here also for us to learn the true nature of godliness. Godliness begins with grace. And when his lips were touched by that live coal and he was being fitted to be a servant of God, the purpose of God is very clear. It was this. There are some elements in God's character which we will never share. His omnipotence, that is, that he can do anything, we will never share that. His omniscience, that he knows everything, we do not share that. But the holiness of God he means us to share. Peter uses the daring phrase of being partakers in his holiness. And when God says I am holy in scripture. In the same breath he says be ye holy. For I am holy. And this holiness in its Separation for God, a holy people, a holy nation, in its shining out with the glory and beauty of God from our character. This is what God means the world to see. Something of that holiness in us, and a world without the Bible will never come to know him, except he is seen in you. What kind of God do you portray
0: to the world? You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.